This show is made possible by members and donors who sign up at bestoftheleft.com and also by gotomeeting.com, green technology helping reduce the need for business travel. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, The Young Turks, Le Show, The Colbert Report, The Progressive, and NPR with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Daily Show. of a knee to the groin, remember a couple of years ago, right around this time of year actually, when then President Bush came to the country and said, uh, we've been talking a lot about how to prosecute the war on terror, whether or not the Patriot Act is legal, uh, and while we were all talking, uh, looks like our economy is about to collapse. <laughs> just, just boom. <laughs> uh, I believe adding, ha ha ha, or something like that. I, I can't even really remember how that goes. Anyway, it turns out that our big banks, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Bank of America, ha- had made a bunch of mortgage loans and then had bundled these loans up, I guess, into uh, bales of loans <laughs> that companies like Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers then sold back and forth to one another at ever-increasing prices until one person there realized, uh, hey, you know, we're just shelling back and forth, right? <laughs> at which point, those companies came to us and said, Uh, If you don't give us $700 billion, everything you love and hold dear in this world will turn to Tang, the orange juice substitute once drunk by astronauts. So J.P. Morgan got $25 billion, Bank of America got $45 billion, GMAC got $16 billion, everybody was getting billions of dollars, and in return for this in no way ransom money, The American people would now be the proud owner of these bales of I'm sorry, troubled assets. We would now bear the risk of owning these mortgages and the banks, the guys who got rich originally selling the loans, would step away. Merely just service the paperwork, handle the dry administrative fine print aspect of it. What could go wrong? Did I say wrong? (laughs) I meant wrong. Wrong signatures, missing documents, false documents, false uh, use of notary publics. One executive from mortgage giant GMAC admitted to blindly signing 10,000 foreclosure affidavits a month. There are now questions about whether workers rushed through the paperwork for thousands of homeowners without even reading the documents. What the, wait, what? (laughs) The banks weren't reading the fine print? The banks? You're the people who came up with the fine print in the first place. We never read the fine print. We don't, we don't read the fine print on anything. Have you ever seen the length of an iTunes contract? You think I'm going to wade through 52 pages of crap to get to my Katy Perry songs? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, dear Mr. Jobs, I have returned this marked-up iTunes contract. Subsection 15B clearly violates the Commerce Clause. Now, you click accept, and you get your songs. So for God's sakes, what's in the fine print? What is in the fine print affidavits and such? These affidavits attest to two very important things. One, that they actually owned the property and therefore had a right to foreclose. And two, that the person that is the borrower was in default. The 
that's not even the fine. You're not even reading the regular print. You know, I imagine not knowing which houses are actually in default could lead to some pretty wacky mishaps. An Orange County homeowner thought a burglar was breaking in, but it was actually someone from her bank. A man from the bank was replacing the lock by cutting it all while the homeowner was inside her home right here dialing 911. A spokesperson for J.P. Morgan Chase told me the bank made a mistake. Oh, really? A mistake? <laughs> spokesperson told you that? Uh, it's a mistake, I guess, to change the locks on a house you weren't foreclosing on. You know, just out of curiosity, even if foreclosure was legit, you do know you can't lock someone out of their house while they're in it. <laughs> Unless you're going to change the locks and then turn the house inside out. Was that the idea? Lock her in and then... Well, you know, since we, the American people, are now the owner of over half of these crappy mortgages, we can demand a halt to these foreclosures. Take a breath until all the paperwork is straightened out, until some order is restored to this system. Unless some type of weird catch-22 has been implanted in the fine print of this scenario that would create perhaps a Sophie's Choice type situation. If you freeze foreclosures, Fannie and Freddie, owned by us, owned by the taxpayer, cannot get any money out of the mortgages they hold. Result, we, the taxpayer, take a hit. And it delays the foreclosure process significantly. Then it means that house prices are going to be weaker for longer, and so will our economy. Huh. <laughs> so our choices are... We can improve the economy by throwing millions of families out of their houses just in time for the holidays. <laughs> or we can let them stay in their houses and crash the rest of the economy. Because apparently now we have a foreclosure-based economy. <laughs> we are <laughs> And the sad part is, Rube Goldberg himself could not have designed a more convoluted method to, in fact, <laughs> us. It literally looks like a green chihuahua's penis. <laughs> Apparently being by lipstick. Well, maybe Congress can get on the case and make it easier for Americans to challenge the authenticity of foreclosures and other legal documents. The new legislation requiring courts to accept valid document notarizations made out of state, which would make it harder to challenge the authenticity of foreclosure and other legal documents. That bill quietly passing through the Senate last week without public debate. So that's how Congress fixes the problem. By passing a bill that says... <laughs> is anybody... Is anybody paying attention? President Obama will not sign into law an overlooked piece of legislation that critics say would make it easier for banks and others to process foreclosure proceedings without signatures. Thank you, President Obama. You know, it's crazy when getting us back to square one feels like victory. Top 1% cannot be taxed. The ignorant want their country back. Take the reins and drive home and bust them into the capital. Epic mass is dumb and dull.
Where the black man wants to spread the wealth I swear the case would go to hell God will save us from ourselves Fear what we don't understand Like hostility in a foreign land So line them up and lock and load But this machine won't run on fear alone And they'd appreciate your voice uh, Gretchen Morgensen, who's been brilliant in covering these financial issues at the New York Times. And you know me, I don't say that often, right? So uh, she writes about sequels to TARP. Uh, she found uh, this very important part of the Dodd-Frank bill that uh, did not get a lot of coverage in the past. You know how they, or President Obama and Geithner and everybody else says, oh, no, no, you don't understand. That said, too big to fail is over. We passed legislation saying that if you screw up, oh, we have the right and the ability and the power to break you up. Now, what did I tell you when I saw that? I said, yeah, that doesn't mean you're going to. It just means you have the ability to, which he did before anyway, and you're pretending you didn't, right? So, okay, but here's what she found in the bill. Uh, most derivatives transactions are expected to go through the clearinghouses. Now, that has an upside, as she explained, more transparency. Good. Um, but they will also be, according to the bill, quote, systematically, uh, systemically important, I should say. Systemically important. Why does that matter? Why that language? As she explains, quote, as such, Dodd-Frank specifically provides, and now quoting the bill, in an unusual or exigent circumstances, the Federal Reserve may provide such entities with a financial backstop, including borrowing privileges. You understand what happened? All the derivatives trading going on in the clearinghouses. The clearinghouses are systemically important. If there's any emergency, the Federal Reserve can give them whatever money they want. <laughs> Voila! Even bigger to fail. The clearinghouse overall is way, way too big to fail. And but you know she didn't point this out. But do you get the second part of that trick? They're like tarp. What a what dummies we were. Why do we go ask Congress for the money? That became a huge issue. It became a huge political problem. And people were mad about it. And then there was accountability. Now people are losing their seats because of TARP. No, we just go get it from the Fed and we don't ask for it. The Fed just prints the money. It's not accountable to anybody. It's not elected by uh, the voters. So if there are unusual or exigent circumstances, we'll just go over the Fed and go, yeah, come on, give us another trillion dollars. By the way, Tarp Schmarp, even if the fairy tale of Tim Geithner turns out being true, and we get, uh, you know, Tarp only costs us $50 billion, that's not the problem anyway. How about the $2 trillion that the Fed took of toxic assets from the banks? How about that? See, they figured it out. They don't need the voters anymore. They're just taking it through the Fed, taking it out the back door. By the way, the clearinghouses, you might be a little unclear. Who sits on the clearinghouse board that would determine if it's exigent circumstances? All the major banks in the country. <laughs> oh, that crash, that crash, that crash. It's going to be spectacular, unfortunately. 
One, one other small thing. I, I want to let it go. I can't let it go. Okay. Do you understand why I talk about the crash in that regard? I mean, look, obviously, if they crash, they get the bailout, they get more of our money, it leads to an even bigger crash, right? But the re why this makes it more likely they will crash? Because those dummy, those uh, guys on, on the major banks that sit on the board of the clearinghouse for derivatives trading, they're not dummies. They can read the law. <laughs> they wrote the law, right? <laughs> they know what's in it. So they just got a free pass. They got out of, a free get-out-of-jail card. And they said, oh, great. So now if we crash, <laughs> Ben Bernanke's going to pick up the tab. So everybody, let's have at it, Hoss. Take as much risk as you like. Make as much money as you can in the short term. And if it crashes, unusual or exigent circumstances. Fed, <laughs> please bring the money in through the back. Everyone gets to make one big mistake. And if you're waiting on me, well, I guess you're gonna have to wait. If you're like most Americans, then the politics of the last 30 years has driven you to the point where you're totally ready to pack up and move to Canada. Or maybe New Zealand, because it looked beautiful in Lord of the Rings. In any case, you're totally serious about it this time, and you're going. Well, you're in luck, because with GoToMeeting, you can work from anywhere and still meet with clients and coworkers online while sharing your screen with one or many people all at once. Visit GoToMeeting.com and use the promo code PODCAST for a 45-day free trial. You could be settled in your new Vancouver home and join socialized medicine before you had to pay a dime. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code PODCAST for this special 45-day free trial. Now, you know that the, the uh, bunch of major banks, including starting off with GMAC Bank, which uh, we, that is to say we taxpayers, own, uh, and we, um, you know, in, in the TARP deal thing, um, and they, um, they have now suspended foreclosures, uh, GMAC's unit, which uh, does business under the name of Ally Bank. You may have seen their commercials. Anyway, um, they um, suspended foreclosures this week. Bank of America suspended foreclosures in every state it does business in now. Um, because apparently all these foreclosure motions have been unsupported by appropriate documentation. Uh, you know, the, perhaps the case of the uh, the one person who was signing a thousand foreclosure notices a day, which require him to uh, verify that he has seen the underlying documentation and can and can swear that it's accurate and complete. Uh, notarizations have been missing. Uh, the underlying documentation has been missing in many cases. The actual notes, and of course, this, this is a result of the mortgages being sliced and diced into a million pieces to be securitized. Don't you know? Doesn't that make you feel better? They're securitized. As I say, the, the, it all started with uh, the GMAC unit, which is part of this now mainly government-owned company called Ally, or something similar. <laughs> Would you like a house? Okay. Here you go. Hmm. <laughs> Big enough? It's very big. <laughs> it's yours. Really? Sure. Just as long as you... Oh, oops. You didn't keep up with the payments. What payment? 
Uh-oh, somebody didn't read the fine print. I didn't see any. Now we're going to have to foreclose. Give me the house. I want the house. It's mine. You... Oh, ask your little friend here. He signed the foreclosure form. You did? Yep, he's the notary. He signed a thousand of them just this morning. You're not a notary. Sure am. Even kids know this is no way to treat a trusted borrower whose loan we sliced into 14 different pieces and sold to investors on three continents. That's why we're different from the other banks. At Alley Bank, we're worse. Our foreclosure forms wouldn't fool a kid. Luckily, they don't have to. It may not be the right thing to do, but it's just the thing we do. Alley Bank, we're in the gutter with you. Member FDICK. With you, talk aside. Now a politician leaning to the right. Left his guard up to some that you wanna go off like that. Get off of my style. Leave a little window. Get off of my style. Now we wear some colored yellow uniforms. Sky is burning, but at least you know we're warm. Go and run yourself a million miles. Open up the colors on all and you go walk like that Get off of my style Keep a little window Get off of my style As you just learned, countless, countless homeowners have suffered at the hands of unscrupulous banks. But have we lost sight of the real victims in the foreclosure crisis? Wyatt Cenac has more. There's a dangerous new trend in American real estate, strategic default. Homeowners are walking away from their mortgages even when they can afford to pay. And this practice worries president of the Mortgage Bankers Association, John Corson. What does that do to other properties and the value in your neighborhood? Uh, the the uh, consequences are dire. For Corson, it's a moral imperative to keep your financial obligations. To find out more about living a good and virtuous financial life, I went to the MBA headquarters in Washington, D.C. Hi there, I am here to uh, see the Mortgage Bankers Association. I'm sorry, they're no longer in the building. What? They're no longer here? They just purchased a $79 million building three years ago. What is going on here? The association walked away from its headquarters building when it went underwater on its mortgage. Wow, so they strategically defaulted on their loan? But I guess since the MBA only put down 5%, the blame should really fall on the idiot mortgage bankers who gave them the money. To better understand the complexities of home mortgages, I caught up with the head of the Nevada Mortgage Bankers Association, John Copeland. If I get the house, how long should I wait before I default on it? Um, you're going to never default. You've signed a promissory note. But the Mortgage Bankers Association defaulted on their $79 million headquarters in Washington, D.C. Correct. If they did it, why can't I? For the association to default doesn't mean that it was the right thing to do. Now, as part of the MBA family, how does it feel knowing your daddy couldn't pay his mortgage? Knowing Daddy couldn't pay his mortgage, we're sympathetic. That's all we can be. Yeah. Sucks to find out your dad's a deadbeat. That is true. 
And one can only imagine the humiliation that deadbeat dad felt walking away from his property after publicly shaming homeowners who do the same. So where's the NBA living now? Where is the NBA at? Yeah. To be honest with you, I have no earthly idea. So they're just out there on the streets? Um, I think we're not really on a street corner. Are they staying at the Y? Um, oh God, I hope they're not turning tricks. I would think not. I think we are certainly making ends meet the best we can. Turns out, like many people, the Mortgage Bankers Association decided it's a better time to rent and found a new place just five blocks up the street from their old $79 million headquarters. Hey there. Hello. I uh, was here to talk to the Mortgage Bankers Association. Okay. I can call upstairs and see if they are. Uh, sure. So I waited. But they never came down. That's because they were in Dallas, Texas at the Gaylord Hotel. The NBA had scraped together the money they saved not making mortgage payments to host a conference. They were feebly trying to lift their members' spirits with the hotel's wine vineyard, giant train set, and by putting on humor workshops like making peace with property values and the ethical mortgage banker. Clearly, they needed my help. Yeah, hey, I was here to talk to somebody from the Mortgage Bankers Association. No, I heard the terrible news that, tell me it's not true that you guys defaulted on your headquarters in DC. So they weren't particularly talkative. Look, I'm just a small time reporter. No, you're not. I'm a small time reporter from Rolling Stone Magazine. I'm here to do a report, an exclusive interview. Get your on, facts straight. I'm, I'm here to do an exclusive interview on John Corson. I was gonna call it John Corson is sitting on top of the world, but now I might as well just call it John Corson is sitting on top of the world as long as he doesn't do it at the Mortgage Bankers Association because they don't allow strategic defaulters. You don't have your facts straight. I'm trying to help you, I sir. Am not an Can I give you a hug no. if you need anything? If you need anything, I'm here to help. We just want to help you. Throughout this turbulent economy, the Mortgage Bankers Association hasn't lost sight of their core values. Everybody wants to avoid that foreclosure and keep that loan on the books and the borrower in the home. And if homeowners keep paying their mortgages, the mortgage bankers can keep paying their rent. Uh, we got a study out called Building a Better America, One Wealth Quintile at a Time. It's from uh, Dan Airely of Duke University and Michael Norton of Harvard Business School. And what they did was they asked Americans, uh, what percentage of the wealth in this country do you think is controlled by the top 20%? And then they asked them, what percentage of the wealth do you think should be controlled by the top 20%? Those are very interesting questions. And... Uh, very interesting answers, and also the reality is also interesting. So, now, uh, when asked, hey, how, what percentage of uh, the wealth do you think that 
top 20% actually control, the American people guess about 59%. Now, that's a big number, um, but when they ask them, this is interesting, all this, you know, this country that believes in, hey, American spirit, who cares? The rich, the rise to the top, we don't need no stinking redistribution of wealth, etc. Now, that's what the conservatives would have us believe. We're a very center-right country, individualistic, uh, don't believe in income equality overall. That, I mean, that's what Fox News tells me every day. How much uh, should the top 20% have of the country as a percentage of wealth? The American people, on average, including Republicans, all different uh, demographic groups were polled here. And it was a large sample size, over 5,000. Uh, in a poll, that's a very, very large number, representative of the country. What percentage of the wealth should the top 20% control? 32%. So, apparently, the American people think that the top 20% should have about half of the percentage of income they think that they actually have, right? So they think that there should be massive redistribution of wealth so the top 20% don't have anywhere near the amount that they have. Now, if you've noticed, I haven't told you what the real number is yet. I've told you what they think it should be and what they think it is. Anybody want to guess along with me? What percentage of the wealth does the top 20% in this country actually control? 84%. <laughs> so that you thought it was a high number with 59%. That's what Americans thought, right? No, 84%. So apparently the American people want massive, colossal redistribution of wealth. So what Fox News tells you about, oh, center-right, oh, no, no way, distribution of, redistribution of wealth is Marxist, etc. Total and utter nonsense. Does not jive with what the American people think at all. Okay. And, you know, I think that the, uh, I looked at the way that they did this poll. I think it's an excellent poll. And so I would welcome anyone to try to duplicate it. My guess is you're going to find very, very similar answers. Okay, now, what do I think? I actually think 32% is too low. The funny thing is, I'm to the right of the country. <laughs> now, now, I've told you this before. In reality, I'm a moderate, right? And in reality, I'm more conservative sometimes than the average American uh, in this country on certain issues. Now, this Washington, D.C., the media and the politicians have become so insane that they consider me way left, right? so far to the left of Obama, they don't know how to track it, right? But the reality is, I'm actually a little to the right of the country. I think 32% is a very low number for the top 20%. Obviously, wealth is going to be concentrated at the upper brackets. I get that. That's part of capitalism. In order to stop that, you'd have to have real significant redistribution of wealth and incredibly high taxes. Sweden, which actually is socialist, and socialist is such a weird, you know, funny word because the question is what percentage of the of the economy should the government control what sectors sh sectors should they be in what sectors should they not be in those are all open questions so calling any country socialist is a, we a little weird right a and certainly inexact but that being said Sweden controls a much larger sector of their economy with their government their government is involved in more sectors for example healthcare right and here of course our right wing says Sweden socialist Bleh! Disaster! Even in Sweden, the top 20% only co control 36% of the wealth. So that's is still higher than what the average American thinks is ideal. 
Now, I don't want to go all the way to Sweden. I, I'm, I'm not that far left. I'm just not. And there's good arguments to be made for it, and I'd love to have those arguments on the show. But So I guess I, I want it to be higher than 36%. But when they tell you we're a center-right country, or when they tell you talk about Marxist or this or that, and Obama wants to redistribute wealth, well, actually, if Americans understood what that meant and, and <laughs> knew the numbers behind it, apparently they want to redistribute wealth a million times more than Obama does. So th that's the reality in the country. Don't believe the hype about what the right-wingers tell you. So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Americans, it is our duty to keep the legacies of our former presidents alive. From Lincoln's freeing the slaves from bondage to Ronald Reagan's freeing the air traffic controllers from their jobs. <laughs> I say let the free market decide which jet has the right of way. And the legacy of our great or greatest president is under attack because the Bush tax cuts are about to expire. I know, I know. <laughs> president Obama is going to raise taxes on anyone making over $250,000 a year. We all know what that is. What is hurting our country the most right now, hurting our economy the most, is this class warfare. Business bashing and class warfare. Class warfare. Class warfare. This is class warfare. Yes, it is class warfare. <laughs> and it's not a fair fight because we give the working class all the good combat experience. <laughs> the rich people Rich people are already suffering. As financial advisor Keith Whitaker told Newsweek, to be rich now means to live in anxiety. Will you remain wealthy? Will the market or the federal government strip you of your assets? And will I lose my summer home? And what about my winter, spring, and fall homes? In fact, the uncertain economy has made the rich so anxious that heirs and heiresses are going to financial boot camps. They're just like military boot camps. Except the boots are Manolo's. <laughs> and like most campers, the super-rich just want to bond with like-minded friends. According to investment advisor Charlotte Beyer, what the rich want now is the chance to discuss their financial worries without being ridiculed for seeming ungrateful. A safe haven. Because nothing's more awkward than complaining about how expensive it is to ski at Tahoe in front of someone who lives in their Chevy Tahoe. <laughs> The White House, believe the White House defends this tax increase by saying it's necessary, as explained by the president's chief economic advisor and spookiest cabinet member, Austin Goolsby. Jim? We've got a big back and forth going about the tax cuts. Under the Republican plan, however, people making more than a million dollars a year 
you're gonna be getting a tax cut of more than $100,000. That's expensive. Giving these big red eggs to the very high income people would cost $700 billion that we would have to borrow. So what? We'll just borrow it from something else big and red. <laughs> and making, making over $250,000 a year does not make you rich. Look at me. I make serious coin. But I'm middle class. I just happen to be upper elite platinum plus middle class. And as a member of the middle class, I know that any tax increase on the wealthy will hurt all of us. I mean, in, in Saturday's The New York Times, Harvard economist and self-proclaimed rich guy, N. Gregory Mankiw, explains that raising rates on the wealthy kills incentive, writing, I can afford higher taxes, but they'll make me work less. Do you know what that means, nation? Fewer N. Gregory Mankiw op-eds. When we return... When we return, I will ask Austin Goolsby to explain why he and the president want to deplete our precious supply of Mancu. I feel so helpless now, my guitar is not around, and I'm struggling with the xylophone to make these feelings sound, and I'm remembering you singing and bringing you to life, and it's raining out the window, and today it looks like night you haven't written to me in a week. I wonder why that is, are you too nervous to be lovers? Friendships room with just one kiss. I watched you very closely and I saw you look away. Your eyes are either gray or blue. I'm never close enough to say. If you thought debtor's prisons were a thing of the past, something out of Victor Hugo or Charles Dickens, well, think again, because they're coming back. According to new studies by the ACLU and the Brennan Center for Justice, poor defendants are being jailed at increasingly alarming rates for failing to pay debts associated with court costs. For instance, Kiwana Young, a single mother of two living in Michigan, was given fines for minor traffic violations, which she couldn't afford to pay. She tried to work them off doing community service, but the court disallowed it and jailed her five times instead for failing to pay the debt. But this isn't happening just in Michigan. It's going on in many states. Gregory White, a homeless man in New Orleans, stole $39 worth of food. The city assessed him more than $300 in fines and fees, and when he couldn't pay them, they put him in the pen for 198 days. In Washington State, a guy was put away for two weeks for owing 60 bucks to the courts, and in Ohio, a woman was jailed for a month because she owed the courts $250. Debtors' prisons are an unconstitutional violation of the 14th Amendment the Supreme Court ruled long ago, but they're making a comeback anyway via the courts. It's getting to the point where being poor is a jailable offense. I know I'm not the only one who's chasing down this runaway afternoon. If we all grab on, could we slow it all down? Memories of breaking waves on windy days and whispering trees. All these rows of homes, did they have to build them right here? Welcome back, everybody. My guest tonight is chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. But his dream job is on the Justice League of Economic Advisors. Please welcome Austin Goolsby. 
Goldsby. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, uh, last time you were here, you were not the, the chairman of the President's uh, Council on Economic Advisors. That's true. Now you are. That's called the Colbert Bump. Now, <laughs> you, you are, let me get this right, you are the, the, you are the head of the Council of Economic Advisors. What does that mean? Do what, what, like, are you like the Joint Chiefs, but for money? Can you, do you have a big red Someone. button where you can, like, launch no, missiles no, or something? The CEA is not really in charge of anything. It's more like the president's data hunter and gatherers and, uh, and internal think tank. Now, you, you, you uh, uh, the, the president is going to let the, the, the core of the Bush tax cuts uh, 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 sunset at the end of this year. And the top 1% of Americans are going to have to pay a lot more money, right? Well, he wants to extend the 98% of the tax cuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the top 1%, the top guys 1%, like me, guys like me are going to have to pay the, more money, correct? On the part of your income above 250000 Most Back of it, to what really, it was. Most of it. <laughs> now, okay, well, you Back tried to, to explain under Clinton. It, the bad old days under Clinton. Yeah, the right, bad exactly. Old days. The, the depression. Now, could we? <laughs> you explained this. Let me put this up here, Jimmy. You explained this with a whiteboard uh, demonstration recently, which is up on the YouTube's. This is what you say. There's the GOP's plan right there. This is how much taxes would be cut. And up there, you got all the rich people above a million dollars. Okay, yeah. who evidently um, from this demonstration look like they own Jupiter. <laughs> Explain this. Explain this to me as quickly as you can. What are you trying to put forth with this uh, this kind of propaganda? Well, this uh, was just trying to demonstrate that the president's plan would give a tax cut to everybody yes. on the first two hundred fifty thousand of income. Yeah. But what's happening is th this plan, which would be needed and give relief to to ninety eight percent of people, mm -hmm. would would face no tax increase at all, is getting held up so that a very small number of people can get a very big tax cut. But isn't this class warfare? Because no. these people, well certainly it's partisan. Look, you made the, no. you made the, 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 the rich people red. That was a warning. Yeah, well, no, we, we're bad warning. guys. Red, fire no. red, bad red, no. emergency no. Red. red. Absolutely. Is, red is Why don't you make color. us green? That's red, the natural red. color for us. Red is a primary color. Green is not a primary color. I don't see color. I'm not a racist. How do you know that's red? What? Well, I have a staff that red? told me that was red. Don't try to trick Look, me the with your is, economic what tricks. What I would point out about this. Point it out. To give that big red circle. Yes. Will cost seven hundred billion dollars, and we and rich we people, we will put that right back into the market. Work. We will put it right back into the market by investing in Chinese it. paper mills and Indian tech companies. Look, we did that in two thousand and one. Yes, it didn't work. We Why had do eight that years again? of prosperity after that, <laughs> didn't we, we? No, a lot of people got no. a lot no. of people got it rich in the, the last first, ten years. It was don't rewrite first, history, my friend. It was the first boom in recorded U.S. economic history in which the middle class's income fell by $2,000 over what was supposed to be a boom, and it was followed by the worst recession since 1929. But so as some I say, people, I that got, didn't work. I, I Let's got, not do that again. I did fine. I did fine. <laughs> and I'm middle class. I'm middle class. What is, what is wrong with that? What is wrong with that? Maybe those people just didn't work hard enough, you know? Don't you believe, don't you believe in the free market? Yes. I is do. this free market? Yes. How so? 
Because you're free to take whatever job you want? No other Western industrial country has a progressive tax rate where the rich get taxed more than everybody else. Name, name one. Name one. Name one other country. France. The UK. I said one. <laughs> I said one. I'm afraid I won. I, I think Fair you lost that round. I'll stick with France. Okay. Now, um, okay, so... Let, let, let's talk general economics for a second, since yes. I totally defeated your analysis. <laughs> On behalf of, you know, Americans out there, when will this end? I mean, it's been two years of economic crisis. Joke's over. We get it. What, what, when will the hammer that is on Americans' heads come off? Well, it, it started in 2007, this recession. Yeah. That's the worst recession since 1929, and it's obviously going to take time to get out of it. We've had private sector job growth for nine straight months. The president's the first one out there saying that's a good start, but it's got to be more. We got to get the growth rate higher. Mm -hmm. We are growing, um, but it's a, a very deep hole, and it just takes a while to get out. You know, the Ch you love the Chilean miners. I mean, they pull them up one at a time, but we're going to... Are you saying all of America is at the bottom of a mine shaft right now? In January 2009, it was at the bottom of a very deep mine shaft. And are January we still drilling looking no, no, for them, out. or are they up actually we're out of the tube? Up. We're coming up one at a time. We're pulling it up. That's, and it look, that, that's you a look good at battle job, cry. We were losing 800,000 jobs per month when the president came into office. Epically horrible. One month, the month of January 2009 was itself as big as the entire recession of 2001 by some measures. And what I would say is, Warren Buffett, I know a little bit, I met in the campaign, he makes the observation that in 1900, the Dow was at 50. In the intervening period from 1900 to today, we had World War I, we had a depression, we had World War II, we had Vietnam, we had a whole bunch of things go wrong. And yet, by 2010, the Dow was at 10,000, 11,000, we make 10, 20 times more than we did then. We're obviously gonna grow our way out of this. What we need to do is stick with a plan where we're making investments that are gonna lead the economy to grow, and the president is doing that and doing policies that we know don't work, that didn't work when we did them the first time, and that we'll have to borrow $700 billion to enact, doesn't make any sense. Well, that was an excellent speech. What I heard from it is, to get out of this hole, we need to have two world wars and a Vietnam. <laughs> is that what no, you're saying? No, no. No, All right, I guess right. I don't understand economics. <laughs> Chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. So the Chamber of Commerce has been 
uh, spending a lot of money against Democrats. Uh, they, of course, represent uh, business interests, corporate interests, and including multinational corporations. Uh, and uh, that we're going to get to how that's an issue in a second. But they've spent 85% of their money on Republicans and against Democrats. So it's not, in the past, sometimes business interests would hedge their bets and be closer to 50-50. No longer the case. They're saying, no, those Republicans, they will do whatever we tell them. They're good little boys. We're going to give to them. Okay? And they've already given to campaigns uh, for trying to fight health insurance reform. Where do they get that money from? Companies like Aetna who were part of the Chamber of Commerce, and specifically donated to that fight because they didn't want to be regulated. They wanted to be able to make as much money as possible for their executives. And the Chamber of Commerce also collected a lot of money from, guess what? Turns out Wall Street banks to fight Wall Street reform. Who would have guessed? Oil companies to fight uh, any kind of reform efforts or giving away of tax subsidies to oil companies, and the list goes on and on. But they have made their allegiance clear there with the Republicans, and they are spending a tremendous amount of money in these elections. They uh, say they will, in the end, spend an unprecedented $75 million on these midterm elections. And that blows away any previous spending by the Chamber of Commerce and almost by any group, right? So they're saying, tell Randy Gonzalez we're coming, right? So, uh, not normally the reaction from the Democrats would be panic, right? Was, oh, no, no, please, please, what do I do? How do I cater to you? Don't give the money to me instead. Well, that's, you know, what is known as the Rahm Emanuel strategy. And, you know, I think the president's been a little guilty of that as we go along. Uh, but now come to find out as elections uh, roll around that Rahm Emanuel was wrong. Uh, that those business interests were not going to give to the Democrats. They were overwhelmingly going to give it to the Republicans. And so the idea of appeasing the drug companies by giving them the same deal that Bush got, well, it didn't really work too well. Trying to appease the health insurance companies and come up with a compromise and kill the public option didn't work too well. And the list goes on and on. So now that the Democrats realize, oops, that didn't work out, well, they have a couple of choices. And normally the choice that the Democrats would make is cut and run. I'll be honest with you, politically, that's usually their MO. They say, oh, oh my God, oh my God, where, where, where do we run, where do we run? Please, business, we love you, we love you. In this case, something a little different has happened. New day in America. You know what Nancy Pelosi's saying? She's basically saying, bring it on. Listen to this very interesting quote from the Speaker of the House. She says, quote, whenever you get hit with an overwhelming weight, you have to jujutsu it. Oh, look at Nancy. Uh, so we want to turn it against them. I want to tattoo them right onto the Republican candidate. Big oil, big banks, big health insurance. We're going to tattoo you with that. So it's like doggy doo stuck on your shoe. Where are you going to go? People will know. Here comes Nancy off the top rope. Suplex. Oh, she brought him all the way up to the top rope and suplexed them off of that. Wow, Jesus and Lord mercy. So look, that makes sense. You say, all right, if big oil is going to spend money against me, well, then I'm going to say the Republican who's collecting from big oil is the one who's representing big oil. And we know that because of people like Re Republican Joe Barton, who, when BP was testifying in Congress, said, I'm so sorry. Okay, apologizing to BP for the oil disaster they created in the Gulf. Is this a strategy that can work? Hell yes. Hell yes. And I didn't see that coming. And, you know, honestly, uh, when I asked Nancy, are you really going to go in that direction? She told me, You don't know me. 
And I don't know you. I said, I guess you're right. I didn't know you were going to come like this. Now, here's another little extra twist. Think Progress, it was a progressive uh, blog, and did a little investigation. Now, these are all facts, and you, you can look into it uh, yourself, and other uh, news organizations are looking into it, etc. Okay? So they said, all right, where's the Chamber of Commerce money coming from? Now, some of it is coming from the United States. Okay, good. And they say that they're an organization that you know, gives some money to politics. That's true, and they have some other things as well. All right, now that's all kind of fairly kosher for the moment being. But here's the other problem. The Chamber of Commerce also gets money from abroad. So, for example, uh, when you do an investigation, you find out that companies from Bahrain have given the Chamber of Commerce about $100,000. Companies from India have given them $200,000. Now, if they spend foreign money on U.S. elections, guess what that is? That's illegal. Okay? So, now we're asking the Chamber of Commerce, hey, how do we know you're not spending money on behalf of foreign corporations to defeat uh, local uh, politicians here? They say, oh, we have internal safeguards. Can you tell, show us what those safeguards are? Of course not. No, 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 no. It's all top secret. Top, what are you, the government? You're not the government. What do you mean it's top secret? There's a law that says you can't spend foreign money. So did you spend it? Show us the records, right? And they say, well, you know, and we keep it very separate, very separate. The money that comes in from Bahrain goes straight into our pocket or wherever it goes, but it doesn't necessarily go to political ads. Really? Why can't you take 200000 from here and 200000 from here and switch it? It's money is fungible, so of course it could go in there, and certainly you have to show us that you didn't, because that seems to be going into your coffers and then spent on political ads, which is illegal. So all of a sudden, we got a, a fight on our hands, and the Democrats are rolling up their sleeves. Okay, now we're having a conversation. But look, the other reason why that might be monumentally important, and right now I'm not saying it is, but it might be, is that. Business interests here, corporate interests, multinational corporations, etc., they might have screwed up here for two reasons. One, politically, they're on the wrong side of this thing. You know, the Democrats put up a, a piece of legislation saying we want to give tax breaks to companies that bring jobs from abroad back to the United States, and we want to take away tax breaks for offshoring jobs. The Chamber of Commerce hated that, paid off the Republicans to kill it, and they did. The Republicans filibustered it. Now, when you ask Republicans, voters, Democratic voters, independent voters, they all agree. That's horrible. They're like, no, 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 we want jobs here. We don't want them in Bahrain and India. Okay? So th they're playing with political dynamite there. Okay? Number two, look, the reason why they gave 50-50 in the past, or roughly speaking, and they give a little bit more to the Republicans, but not this much, is because you want to make sure that both parties are on your side. That's how they bought the Democrats and the Republicans. That's been our number one problem. If they give up that neutrality, if you will, well, then the Democrats have nothing to lose by going after them. That's a major mistake by corporations, okay? And that might free up the Democrats to actually represent us. <laughs> Do I dare dream? Do I dare dream? Maybe a little bit, but I, is that blue I see? <laughs> There's a little bit of hope in there, right? Because that, that's an opening they created. And, and if the Democrats walk through it, it'll help them politically, no question about that. And uh, maybe they'll realize, hey, you know what? The, they can spend 8 to 1 against us, and that is the current n numbers. Uh, business interests spending 8 to 1 against the Democrats. And the Democrats might still win some of those elections. And Democrats realize, hey, you know what? If they're going to spend all their money against us, well, then they're on the opposite side. So let's go get to some of the bitches.
that would be awesome. All right, I'm on Johnson Avenue in San Luis Obispo, and I'm five years old or six, maybe. And indications that there's something wrong with our new house. Trip down the wire twice daily, I'm in the living room watching the Watergate hearings while my stepfather yells at my mother, launches a glass across the room, straight at her head, and I dash upstairs to take cover, lean in close to my little record player on the floor. So this is what the volume knob's for, I listen to dance music, dance music. All this week we've been hearing how Americans live on about $50,000 per year. That is the median household income in this country. Half the country makes more and half the country lives on less. Many of the people we're meeting are struggling. Not the people we'll meet this morning. The Donnell family of Phoenix, Arizona isn't interested in making more money. NPR's Ted Robbins explains. C is for cowboy, cactus, and coyote. Eight-year-old Isabel Donnell is helping her four-year-old sister navigate a computer spelling program, while their dad, Greg, is in the kitchen cleaning up after dinner. During the day, Greg Donnell builds and repairs computers as a freelance IT consultant. He says the recession affected his business. The number of computers that I used to sell has definitely gone down, but it's also picked up with more repairs. So Greg's income has stayed steady at roughly $20,000 a year. His wife Lola earns about 30000 plus benefits, working part-time as a medical technician in a nearby hospital lab. A decade ago, the couple earned twice as much, about $100,000 a year. Greg sold insurance, and they lived in Tony North Scottsdale. But he wasn't happy. We were on this treadmill of making money, as much money as possible every year, uh, and feeling like we had to always increase that because we wanted to be able to buy more things and live in a nice house and have nice cars and everything else. At the same time, Lola Donnell didn't get a job she dreamed of, working at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale. That's a painful memory. I remember I prayed. I prayed so hard. Um, I still didn't get a job. Um, but there was a sense of letting go. They were both ready to make big changes. So in 2000, they moved from Scottsdale to a home in a modest neighborhood in Phoenix. They grew spiritually. Their home is filled with Catholic imagery, a tapestry of the Last Supper, crosses in nearly every room. They decided to work less so they could spend more time with their children. So they cut their expenses along with their income. While others chose to borrow and spend more than they made before the recession, Greg says he and Lola chose not just to live within their means, but to live within their needs. We realize, I realize, that we don't need as much. You know, the things that we have are very good. You know, we're very fortunate to have what we have. We may not have the newest or the best, but uh, we have what we need. But a simpler lifestyle does not mean simple choices. Their 1999 Subaru Forester is worth about $4,000, and it needs $2,500 work. I was at the point of almost signing the papers this weekend to, to get a new car. But that meant new car payments. You know, we kind of talked about it, and I think we're going to go ahead and fix the car. Uh, maybe do pieces of it at a time rather than paying all $2,000 or $2,500 all at once. 
Greg Donnell also makes money go farther by bartering his computer expertise in exchange for landscaping services and home repair. They have a 16-year-old son, Tyler, who's getting good enough grades for a scholarship to Arizona State University next year. And they use credit cards for everything. That's right. We use our credit cards to rack up miles. Like the girls and my wife are all traveling to Florida for free on Southwest because of our credit card. They pay off their cards every month. And they recently took a trip as a couple. They drove to Sedona with their tent. But they ended up getting a free room in a luxury resort by sitting through a timeshare presentation. Um, let's just say it was like one of the best times I've ever had. So the Donnells don't feel they've really given up much. They can cover their $600 a month mortgage, while the home across the street is a short sale and several others on the block are in foreclosure. Greg says his investments took a big hit in the recession, but they've come back some, and he's even managed to save enough to live for a year if they both lose their jobs. Lola says she's had time to meditate and reflect. I'm learning that it's a benevolent uh, universe we're taking care of. The Donnells could work more, but then they'd have less time for what matters to them. They choose to live in the middle. It helps them feel comfortable financially, emotionally, and spiritually. Ted Robbins, NPR News. Newt Gingrich uh, went on the attack against Nancy Pelosi. He said that uh, Republicans are the party of paychecks and uh, Democrats are the party of food stamps. Right? Now, Nancy Pelosi objected to that and she fought back about that. And, uh, and so then Gingrich goes on uh, Greta Van Susteren's show on uh, Fox News Channel and Greta's going to ask him about it and he has a curious answer because remember Nancy Pelosi said actually food stamps are uh, unfortunate because we don't want people getting food stamps, we don't want the economy doing poorly but have a good multiplier effect uh, because the more money you put into food stamps the more it circulates throughout the economy and apparently Gingrich does not agree. Let's watch. And I suggested that their policies kill jobs and therefore that food stamps it, may be the right symbol for the Democratic Party and she seemed to get very upset. I think that what, I think probably what she didn't like is the sort of the way it was framed as uh, is that the choice that you tell you tell Republicans when you go out there and run you can either say the Dem you can say the Democrats are the party of food stamps while while the GOP is the party for paychecks. I think and then she responded she said it's that that food stamp is the biggest bang for the buck when you do food stamps and unemployment insurance. It's the biggest bang for the buck, and she says that for every dollar a person receives in food stamps, a dollar seventy-nine is put back in the economy. Well, you know, I, I carry around a uh, bumper sticker that says two plus two equals four. So I'd be very curious how a dollar given to somebody becomes a dollar seventy-nine. 
Uh, and I think if we could get that to work with the U.S. Treasury, so if people gave the Treasury $1,000, it became $1,790, <clears throat> we could pay off the federal debt and never worry about spending or anything. I mean, I, you know, somehow I don't understand how liberal math turns $1 into $1.79. <laughs> liberal math. <laughs> math, it's so damn liberal. All right, now you want me to explain? United States uh, Agriculture Department says actually Pelosi's wrong. Food stamps multiplier effect on the economy is not $1.79, it's actually $1.84, it's higher. Now, the, there's one article here that uh, explains it uh, better than anyone else can. It's actually the Wall Street Journal. And I'm sure the Wall Street Journal is not doing liberal math. They explain, as you know, anybody with any bit of sense and, and a, knows a little bit of about economics understands, is that when you uh, different things that the government does have different multiplier effects on the economy. So, for example, uh, when you give food stamps to people, they spend it right away. In fact, 80% of the food stamps get spent in the first two weeks. 97% of them get spent within the first month. So they go directly into the economy right away, and it doesn't get saved, right? And when it goes into the economy, it kicks off uh, a cycle where, uh, the, for example, the grocery store makes more money, the owner of the grocery store makes more money, uh, the people working at the grocery store make more money, but also the people who, let's say, pick the corn, they make more money. And all the people who made more money from the food stamps going in there then wind up spending more money as well, which then also gets into the economy, and it creates a virtuous cycle. And food stamps, since they get spent so quickly, uh, and most assuredly, have the best multiplier effect on the economy. And that's how it works, and every economist in the country understands that concept, including the conservative ones. But now, is it that Newt Gingrich doesn't understand that, that he's stupid? No, 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 no. There's a plenty of dumb guys on the right, but Newt Gingrich ain't one of them. And he knows exactly how a multiplier effect works, but he doesn't like the math that's coming out, so he tries to dismiss it, because he thinks the Fox News audience is full of idiots who aren't going to understand it. So he says, oh, liberal math, get out of here, multiplier effect, what's economy, I don't know. Get out of here. One of the reasons is he doesn't like food stamps, because that helps the poor. But there's a second reason. Because if you look at the multiplier effect of all the different ways the government can spend money, two come out the worst. So it could be over a dollar, well, those are good because that means you're getting a virtue circle, or for a dollar spent by the government, it could be under a dollar, which means it's not productive and you have a vicious cycle where, you know, there are some th good things that come out of it, like savings, to be fair, right? But that it doesn't go back into the economy and stimulate the economy. So what are the two uh, proposals that the government can do that fare the worst? Well, look at this. And coming in at uh, second from the bottom is cut the corporate tax rate. That is a multiplier effect of 0.30, meaning for every dollar that you cut the corporate taxes, it only brings 30 cents back into the economy. Okay? So now, of course, the Republicans don't want you to know that, because what is their proposal? Eric Cantor, Republican leadership in the House, he says their proposal is to cut the corporate tax rate to 0%. That is their proposal. So they don't want you <laughs> This is liberal math! <laughs> Department of Agriculture, Wall Street Journal, liberal math, get out of here! And so that came in second to, to last. What came in last? Make Bush income tax cuts permanent. <laughs> that came in at 0.29, the worst multiplier effect of anything the government can do. And Newt Gingrich doesn't want you to know that. He wants to call that liberal math. And as Stephen Colbert once famously and awesomely put it, 
reality has a well-known liberal bias, and apparently so does math. Hi, Jay. This is Dave down in Tucson, calling from the heart of McCain, Kyle, Brewer, Hayworth country. I've been listening uh, to your program for a little over a year now, and I finally got the gumption to join. Recently sent in a year, or on a monthly basis, so for a year's membership. I should have started listening sooner, and I should have sent more money. So I'm going to correct that tomorrow and uh, double the uh, donation double the amount I sent you. We in Arizona and the whole country need more and more of this kind of programming, this kind of perspective. We've got to get the message out. And it's just, uh, I don't know. Why is it so difficult to call out the lies and the liars on the other side? The dumbing down of this country is scary. The anonymous donations are scary. Ruinous wars are scary. Everything is scary. I hope you can increase the, the, the passion of the message and somehow uh, get the truth to resonate with voters of this country. Bless you all, and I'll be listening every time you have a new program. Goodbye. Hey, Jay, this is Ari from Vacaville, and I just wanted to tune in on the religion debate. I also was a conservative, blindly voting Republican, um, religious, but I, 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 gotta, I gotta weigh in on the other side, too, that, you know, it's not all wrong. Um, like one of the other callers said, that, yeah, religion uh, in, in the Bible definitely is left. Jesus is very humble and not like what the Republican side seems to paint um, Jesus as. They just seem to take it, you know, away. But on the other side, it's also that there's a lot of stuff in religion that's not good, and a lot of things about the way the churches are run these days, you see, like, nonprofits uh, ended up being rich and, and powerful and ended up in corruption. Uh, a lot of things going on there that is not good. So I wouldn't say I'm a part of the Christian side necessarily, but I would say that there's a lot of very good principles in there um, that Jesus and a lot of the disciples talked about and should be taken into uh, view without just dismissing them. Anyways, keep it the good work. I love the show. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to those who called in to leave a message. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action to be played on the show, the number to dial 206-202-3410. And I'm going to follow up the the pattern of the last show or two and talk about the uh, rally coming up in D.C. I got a question through the website, and, uh, and so I think there are a couple of things pointed out here that I should address on the show. Chris writes, I really want to go to the rally, but I'm a bit intimidated by the number of people planning to show up. Do you expect this will turn into the sort of thing where you have to show up at 6 a.m. in order to get a spot where you'll be able to see anything? Uh, If we're driving, what's parking going to be like? 
are there i'm totally paraphrasing are there going to be you know easy access to bathrooms that sort of thing logistical stuff and so i'm happy to uh talk a little bit about the logistics of dc and wildly speculate about the event itself first of all if you're driving in you know if you're staying in a hotel just park at the hotel it'll cost you some money but that's how things go if you are driving in for the day i highly recommend that you just uh, park on the outer rim of the DC Metro system and take the train into the center of the city. You won't have to pay for parking out there. The train is cheap. The train is easy. It's uh, I've seen trains, uh, you know, several different ones uh, across this country and uh, at least one or two in Europe. And by far, the Washington DC train system is the easiest to navigate for a newcomer. You know, you'll show up, you'll take a look at the map for like five minutes, you'll acquaint yourself with it. And, and you'll think of yourself as a pro because it's so easy to get around. All the train lines are color-coded instead of like D7 line through the, you know, it's seriously super easy. So, uh, so I highly recommend using the train. How early should you get there to get a spot? I have no idea. I think that seeing what's going on probably won't be a problem because I, my guess as happens very often in with big rallies like this, there will be like large television screens so that people in the back of the crowd will be able to see. Um, but beyond being able to see, I think that experiencing the event yourself is actually item number two on the priority list for, for an event like this. Priority number one is to show up and be counted. So if you think you don't want to show up because you might not be able to see, like, well, that's kind of selfish. You should show up to be counted, be part of the news story, look at how many hundreds of thousands of people showed up, and, like, if you don't have the best view in the world, well, you can still say you were there and then watch it online later. That's what I say. And then in terms of, like, the nitty-gritty uh, logistics of the place, it's not going to be like Times Square because Times Square is a – it's an enclosed area, whereas the National Mall is very open. So no matter how many people try to cram themselves onto the National Mall – like, I was there during Obama's inauguration. It was by far the largest crowd I'd ever seen there um, – you know, they estimated 2 million people or something like that. Uh, you, you're you never stuck there. If you want to get out, you can get out. And uh, what Washington, D.C. does really well, because they have lots of practice at it, is managing large crowds. So for big rallies like this, it's really easy for organizers of rallies to get massive amount of, amounts of portageons, uh, and and you're never going to be stuck in the crowd. So I wouldn't worry about any of that stuff. Now, moving on to the main event, of course, uh, the rallies will be happening in the early part of the afternoon uh, as a prelude to the really exciting thing happening for the day is at four o'clock, uh, one hour after the rallies are scheduled to end, I'm holding a best of the left listener meetup uh, in the Chinatown Gallery Place area of Washington, D.C., and I have now put all of the information you could possibly want about it online at uh, bestofleft.com, there is a blog post right at the top of the page that you will always be able to find between now and uh, and the date of the event. And then I've also created an official event uh, on Facebook. And so, and the reason for that is not just to have the information there, but also for people to RSVP. And, you know, I, I had no idea if I would post this up here and are like five people going to show up? Or, uh, or 50. I flat out have no idea. And that's why I'm actually asking that if you're on the Facebook, 
it would be great if you could RSVP because if it turns into like a big crowd, then I should call the bar ahead of time and let them know that there's a big crowd coming and see if they can accommodate that. Um, so the easiest thing to do, of course, besides uh, going to bestofleft.com and seeing the information there and uh, being linked to Facebook where you can uh, RSVP, you can just go straight to the Facebook event, which of course is at facebook.com slash event period php question mark eid equals 16655970335557 ampersand ref equals mf. Now, if you're just on Facebook uh, and you're looking for the event, you want to take the roundabout way of finding that page instead of just going directly to it like a normal person, uh, the roundabout way would be to go to facebook.com slash best of the left. And right there, will, there will be a link to the event. It should hopefully be obvious what it is, uh, and you can RSVP that way. It would be uh, greatly appreciated just to get uh, a sense of the number of people who are coming. Um and I'm excited to say, you know, I was uh, excitedly surprised that um, within a few hours of posting that event and making it available on on Facebook, about uh, about six or seven people had kind of signed up like right away. Um, so it's potentially possible that a lot of people are going to show up. So that's exciting. Now, of course, I just need to thank a couple of people before I go. Karen S. signed up for a monthly membership on June 25th, and Chad B. signed up for his membership on uh, September 4th and went ahead and paid for a full year in advance. So, of course, huge thanks to Karen and Chad and all the members who make the show possible. I can't do it without you guys and can't thank you enough, which you know already because you're tired of hearing me say that. Of course, everyone can support the show by spreading the word to everyone you know about it. It makes a huge, huge difference just uh, to spread the word word of mouth. You can follow the show online and help spread the word about it online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. Of course, I highly recommend that right now, especially right before uh, this uh, meetup in D.C. If you think you may be coming, uh, you know, up updates will always be posted to uh, Facebook and Twitter in case there are any. And then details about the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode are always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black, black, now black and Just a fond farewell to a friend